Welcome to the podcast. We're getting really wonky today, but stick with us. It'll be worth it. We're discussing some of the more arcane aspects of the state's energy policy framework. It's an alphabet soup of information. The payoff, however, will be a better understanding of the state's renewable portfolio standard and the fierce debate going on right now on Beacon Hill about whether it makes sense to increase the standard to help meet the state's greenhouse emission targets. I'm Bruce Moe of Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined by Deborah Donovan, Massachusetts Director of the Acadia Center, a nonprofit that promotes solutions to climate change, and Bob Rio, a senior vice president and the energy expert over at Associated Industries of Massachusetts. Let's start with some basics. Deborah, what is the Renewable Portfolio Standard and how does it work? Well, it's a um, target that the anyone who's supplying electricity, whether it's a regulated utility or a competitive supplier, has to buy enough certificates generated by renewable generators, a certain you know, types of renewable generators, then when they buy those RECs, um, they're compensating the renewable generators for the difference between energy prices, which are um, set by other more mature technologies, and the amount of money that a renewable generator needs to be financially viable. Over time, as we get more and more renewable generation in our system and around the country, those costs will go down, and we have found that the renewable portfolio standards are the quickest tool to reach that goal. So the renewable standard's been in place for since the late 1990s, and so now anybody who's buying their electricity from uh, their utility or their um, other suppliers are getting about 13% of their energy is has been generated by a renewable energy generator. And it goes up 1% a year? It goes up 1% a year. Perfect. So now, Bob, um, there's a political debate on Beacon Hill about this standard and how it should go, uh, whether it should increase more quickly. Can you bring, bring us up to date on where that debate stands? Yes, there's been a lot of proposals to increase the renewable portfolio standard um, faster than the 1%. In the Senate passed a version that would increase it 3% per year. So, in other words, increasing it from 1% increase to 3% uh, per year. And the House original bill uh, that that was uh, that was came out of the uh, Energy Committee increased to 2% per year. So there was a difference between the two. The bill that came out of the House yesterday that was voted on uh, would increase it 2% per year for the years 2020 to 2030 and then return it to the 1% per year increase. So there's a little difference in, in, in approach between the House and Senate at the moment. That's correct. So increasing renewable energy, Deborah, sounds like a good idea. Who's going to oppose that? What, what's, the, what's the fighting point here? Why is there a debate about it? Well, one of the things I wanted to mention was that the standard was originally designed quite a while ago, and it really hasn't been changed in the last 10 years. But we know so much more about what we need to do to electrify um, or to decarbonize our electric system to make sure that we meet our climate change goals for our region. And so Massachusetts has a set of um, laws in place. And the really the only way that we're going to be able to comply with those laws to meet the, the emission reduction targets globally 
from all sectors uh, is to really pick up the pace in a significant way so that we can get there. Now, there are many different policies that encourage renewable energy, and they're each designed to fit the needs of a specific type of renewable energy, depending on where it's at in its life cycle and what types of services it delivers. So there, there are multiple policy tools that we're using right now. The Renewable Portfolio Standard is one of them. Um, and what we're finding in, at, at Acadia Center, um, we've done some analysis, and it's really clear that unless we try for a renewable standard or commit to a renewable standard that reaches about 45% by 2030, we are just in combination with every other tool we have in our toolbox. We're not going to make our goals. So before we, we hear from Bob on that, what qualifies as renewable energy under the renewable portfolio standard? I mean, everybody has their own image of what's renewable. Exactly. So, right. so what qualifies? So that, again, those are, uh, you know, many debates have, have gone on over the years about um, which renewables qualify. What we're talking about in this case is um, the class one sector of the renewable portfolio standard. So that is um, the technologies like wind and solar um, are good examples of those. Um, things that don't qualify would be um, large hydro, which is a very mature technology. We've had it, you know, in existence for, you know, hundreds of years and um, has received, you know, or other technologies that have, have already received a lot of support from other other policies. Does offshore wind qualify? Yes, it does. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, Bob, what's your view about increasing the uh, renewable portfolio standard? Yeah, we, we believe that increasing the portfolio, renewable portfolio standard be unnecessary. Uh, the climate change goals that we've established are independent of the renewable power goals. For instance, large hydro is not considered to be renewable power under the definition in Massachusetts, although other states do in fact include it as a renewable definition. Yet large hydro brings us enormous amounts of zero carbon power. And from a carbon perspective, from a climate change perspective, has really the same benefits as renewable power. So we've come up with these artificial designations for what is good and what is bad, even though both of these types of power, hydro, excuse me, on, offshore wind, onshore wind, and solar, as well as hydro, can all contribute to our zero carbon goals and will be contributing and have contributed. And by focusing on renewable power, you've taken off the table any opportunities for using hydropower to meet, to meet our zero carbon um, goals, and therefore you've put all your eggs in basically the solar, onshore wind, and offshore wind baskets. And we think that's an unnecessary restriction on our ability to meet these very, very important goals. But Deborah's saying you need everything to, to, to reach our, our, our emissions goals. Well, renewable power does not include hydropower. Uh, so, you know, if we need everything and we're increasing the renewable portfolio standard, hydropower would at some point become not eligible to be, to be accredited here in Massachusetts. Well, as I said earlier, one of the purposes of the renewable portfolio standard is to inject you know, revenues into kind of nascent te technologies, which there were, hydro is not one of them. But 
with the understanding that it's really important to do everything that we can, um, there is a statute in Massachusetts, um, and for shorthand we're calling it Section 83D, which does get at this issue that Bob's raised, which is that we do need hydropower. We need to increase our carbon-free power in our region. And so, you know, we're, we're turning on the faucet there too, right? And, and that's through these um, contracts that the utilities are required to enter into to buy the energy directly from a hydro producer. And in this case, it would be the um, Hydro-Quebec um, that would be imported into our region. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that there are benefits, um, multiple benefits to creating renewable energy resources within our own region, within Massachusetts or within New England. Things like jobs that and economic development that um, don't necessarily come by importing power from uh, another country, um, even though that is a one of the best moves that we have among many. So I guess I'm reading between the lines here. It sort of sounds like um, the first phase of this argument about renewables and wh wh whether we need to up our our game in terms of renewables. But it now sort of sounds like what kind of renewables do we want? Do we want hydro and more of it, or do we want solar and wind, which is more uh, we can produce that locally? And I guess sort of the, the backdrop is is that the wrecks that the, you know the purchase of these things is sort of a subsidy to to one type of energy over another. Is this really a fight over what type of clean energy we want, or is it something else? Well, I think that. Looking at this as an either-or conversation, it's just a false dichotomy. It's not necessary to pit one kind of zero-carbon energy source against another. What's important is to use the right tool for the job. And there's no need for hydro energy to receive any kind of compensation to bring them up to, up to you know, sort of par with other more mature technologies. There's definitely no need for that, especially hydro that's owned by um, a government agency and, you know, is being brought into our region on transmission lines that are going to be paid for by Massachusetts electric right, consumers. Right. This is a very different thing. In the competitive market, in the competitive wholesale energy market, renewable energy resources are competing against natural gas, coal, and nuclear, and in-region hydro to even just get to be chosen to run and just generate electricity. So what the REC enables them to do is to kind of make up the difference between what their financial needs are and what the energy market signals are right now, which is being so dominated by other technologies. And over time, we've seen the cost of all these technologies that are eligible to receive class one RECs, we've seen those costs go down dramatically. And it really is because, you know, it's just a, a way to kind of, you know, prime the pump, mm -hmm. so to speak. I think that that, I'm using yet another water analogy here, but um, that that's the purpose of the RPS. So... I, I, give me your thoughts on that, Bob. Well, the RPS was designed at a time when we didn't use a lot of long-term contracting for renewable resources. You know, the uh, the RPS was indeed designed to give these 
resources, a little extra money so that they could compete. Now what we've done is, for instance, in the offshore wind solicitation that uh, just happened where we picked 800 megawatts of offshore wind to begin building uh, very, very soon, those were done on the long-term contracts where the uh, provider or the uh, vineyard wind in this case is giving the utility a one-price contract, a one-price per kilowatt or project for the power. They're not relying on RECs. In fact, the all those contracts were bid and signed under the existing REC program, the 1% per year. And so they did not indicate in any of their filings that they were concerned that the REC market would not be there for them or that the REC market wouldn't be higher priced. They are getting a price for their power regardless of whether the REC prices are a penny, five cents, or whatever they are. It, do it simply doesn't matter. It doesn't incentivize these. We've gone to a case where we're doing these long-term contracts now, so the provider is made whole. The provider is giving enough financial insurance to build these projects, and the RECs simply don't need to be there like they used to be years ago before we transition to the long-term contract model. So that... That's correct that the long-term contract model provides a developer with a financial, an amount of financial security that they can take to the bank and they can finance an 800-megawatt project. What we're talking about here is a different tool for a different kind of developer who is in a competitive market without a long-term contract and still needs to you know, make up that gradually shrinking difference between the energy market prices that they receive like anybody else in the competitive market. The long-term contracts are a great tool for these getting these kind of commitments and keeping the costs low, but the kind of resources that are, you know, beyond the offshore wind, the kind of resources that are receiving RECs are not ever going to get those kind of same deals of long-term contracts that um, the offshore wind and the hydro power are getting. We still need all of those. And, I, you know, I'm not here saying that we have to pick either or. I really, I really don't look at it that way. I just see that, you know, we're, we're, we're picking up the pace. We're using all these different tools. We're using long-term contracts for hydro. We're using long-term contracts for offshore wind. And there is a whole other sector of renewable generating technologies that we need we, we're not going to get there without them. And what they, the other thing that these resources need to be financeable is they need some really good look into the future to know, like, how stable the market is going to be for them. And there's some concern that the entry of, you know, these long-term contracts is going to kind of destabilize the rec revenue that they're going to have. So this is actually an important tool to send the right signal to these other types of, you know, the land-based wind and, and so forth, to send the right price signal to them and make sure that they stay in the mix, they show up, and they deliver the other parts of the renewable energy portfolio that we need. Okay, at the risk of going even wonkier uh, here, the clean energy standard, how does that work, Bob? And, and how Because I've seen some opponents of increasing the REC, they sort of do the Senate version, 3%, 3% a year. And I, actually, I think it's 2%. I've seen it played out. And by 2050, it's a huge amount are in this REC market, so much so that the clean energy, I think it's 75% ends up in the REC market, and, and the clean energy standard is 80%. Mm -hmm. 
by 2050. And people sort of say at that point, this 20-year contract we signed for hydro would not qualify uh, for the cleaner. And so we're eventually essentially paying money to Hydro-Quebec for something we can't count toward our our emissions targets. How does that work? And I, and I also think it's important to note that even though the initial contract is for 20 years, hydro can be around for much, much, much longer. So there's nothing to prevent us from re-upping that contract for another 20 years at a probably a lower price since you've paid off a lot of the construction costs in the first 20 years. So even though we're focused on the first 20 years, we should be really focused on the first 40 years or so because that hydro can continue to give us clean baseline power for many, many, many decades. Um, and so the clean energy standard you're talking about, Massachusetts has a law independent of the renewable portfolio standard which requires that by 2050, 80% of all the power used in Massachusetts by suppliers and utilities needs to be clean energy. And generally, that's either renewable energy, RPS-eligible energy, or hydropower. There are a few other sources that are also allowed, but they're very minor at this time. So basically, you have a 80% goal, which is zero carbon energy. So we know in 2015 we would be at 80% zero carbon, and that can either be made up of a portion of hydro um, or the vast majority can be renewable. But the important point is um, the renewable power can be used to uh, fill the entire 80% if necessary. In other words, if there's not any clean energy, if there's not any hydro, the, um, the, the renewable portfolio must be used to meet that 80%. So um, basically what you've done is you've, you've, you have a renewable portfolio that is now 80%. You just, you've just allowed some of it to be used by hydro. If that hydro is not there for any reason, then it must be filled by renewable power. And, you know, as time goes on, we will get a clearer sense of where the hydro is, what year it's coming online. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is it's not built yet. It's not delivering this power now. So we don't know what date that's going to be. And it's quite possible over the short term, particularly, the renewable portfolio, as the CES increases, the only way to, in to meet that will be by buying more renewable power. So, Deborah, it just seems to me, if I'm listening to the two of you, one of your chief concerns is that without an increase in the renewable portfolio standard, uh, solar and wind could sort of get a little lost in the marketplace here. And by increasing the standard, it sends a signal to the market that that's something we want to promote and, and you want to draw that out uh, more. Right. And, and of course, there it's the, the growth in that part of our um, generating portfolio is an essential ingredient to us reaching this 80% uh, reduction by 2050. Um, I have a little bit of a different take on the, what the clean energy standard, what the function of it is, uh, and that is, you know, somewhat like how Bob described. Is it? It's basically the backstop. So it is there to make up the gap between what other policies aren't achieving in the in the um, effort to reach this um, eighty percent by twenty fifty, and so. 
the you know, and in fact, it's correct that the hydro that's being bought under this contract that we we're calling you know the eighty three D contract um, does generate eligible recs, but it ge- generates a vast amount more of these. Sorry, excuse me, not recs, but the um, the clean energy certificates, the ones that are allowed to, to you know fill in that gap. The volume of those clean energy certificates generated by this Hydro Quebec contract far exceeds anything that we could ever use in Massachusetts between now and 2050. And and the clean energy standard itself does go up by 2% every year, right? And that's just the trajectory that we're on. It's based on where we are today and where we have to get by 2050. Um, So the only way that the RPS could overtake the clean energy standard is if it were going up faster than 2%, right? Um, but in but there'll always be a space for that. What one thing that I I don't know if you know this, Bob, um, but d- does the hydro really need the revenue from the the clean energy certificates? I I just don't know enough about. I I just know that the economics of hydro energy, especially one that's subsidized by um, a government agency, is facing a very different set of financial needs than say you know a market-based competitive um, developer of, you know, say a large commercial solar field on a rooftop of a hospital or something like that. The, 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 I think it's a, it's a mischaracterization to say that the hydropower gets clean energy credits that they can then sell. If those are sold, it comes off the price of the contract. So for instance, if the price of the contract is 10 cents and I'm certainly making that up, I have no insight into what the price of the contract is. That's what we're paying. If the clean energy credits can be sold off those, and let's say they're one cent, then that means one cent comes out of the clean energy credit bucket, if you will, and now the rate payer then pays nine cents from another bucket. It still means that they're paying 10 cents. So for instance, if it's zero, we're paying 10 cents from bucket A. If the clean energy credits are one cent, then we're paying 9%, 9 cents from bucket A and 1 cent from bucket B, but the only, eventually the bucket is your pocket. It doesn't change, so they're not getting a subsidy. Um, uh, they're just getting a price. And the solar power, the new solar program works the exact same way. We have a price that we give for solar power, and the recs then are part of that price. So it's a one price for per kilowatt. If the RECs are not there, if the RECs are zero, the developer still gets that same price. If the RECs are, you know, nine cents a kilowatt, then the developer gets whatever the remaining price is and then gets nine cents from the REC program. But it's all paid for by the rate payer. Um, so under the new programs we've established, and it's, again, it's the same thing with the offshore wind. The offshore wind people are going to give us a price. If the RECs are not available, if the RECs if the rec program went away tomorrow, we'd still pay the same price. And uh, so it does not, it is not a subsidy. AIM has never advocated for a subsidy for the hydropower. Uh, they don't need the subsidy. Um, so I think characterizing it as somehow a subsidy is, is really not, not but, the right characterization. But Deborah is sort of saying that the raising the renewable portfolio standard Two percent, three percent, whatever whatever politicians decide upon, is a way of sending a message to primarily solar and wind producers. To here's an incentive to do so. You say that's not needed. 
Right. Why, why do you think that? Right. We, th- that would only be for, for, for projects that are really done on the merchant basis where they, where they, where they don't have long-term contracts. The offshore wind is going to have a long-term contract. Right. The solar people, under the new program, it is essentially a long-term contract. We're paying a tariff per kilowatt hour of solar that is, de- that is decided by the Department of Public Utilities through an auction process, which has already occurred. That price will be set for the new solar program. Okay, and it does not matter. Those people can take that long-term price to the bank and say, this is what I'm going to get for the next several years. Now, the only place that a wreck would make a difference, if, if, a, if a merchant power plant, wind, let's say, decided to be built and wanted to be built without a long-term contract, and therefore they would use that wreck money as, as a financial assurance to go to take it to the bank. So really... Uh, you're only talking about onshore wind that really, really needs a, a wreck. Now, the interesting part about the onshore wind projects are that in the most recent hydro solicitation, that was not a hydro solicitation. That was a clean energy solicitation. It happened to be the project that was chosen was all hydro, but that was open to any other renewable power project. There were wind projects that bid on that and that would have gotten long-term contracts. There were solar projects that, in fact, bid on it. So had those projects been chosen as part of the, the uh, hydro contract because they weren't large enough to overtake the whole, the whole project, so it would have been 75% hydro, let's say, instead of 125% wind and solar, for instance, they would have received the long-term contract. Mm-hmm. And so we would have been in the same boat as where we are now, where they don't need wrecks because they are getting a fixed price for the power that comes across the grid. So we don't believe that there may be some projects around, some small projects around that are relying on wrecks because they're small, they're merchant. But virtually all the renewable power coming in now, the offshore wind and the new smart program and solar, are really based on a fixed price contract over a long period of time, which really eliminates the need for uh, rec prices. Well, um, just bringing the conversation back to the RPS and the, the clean energy standard, I, I guess the, another way to, to look at this is that, um, you know, if the, the contract is structured, say, let's talk about hydro. I think that's really one of the things that keeps coming up um, from Bob's organization and the utilities. Um, the concern about the, um, the, the smaller gap between the, the re- renewable portfolio standard target and the clean energy standard target as that gets smaller, that that's some disadvantage to the hydro contract. But I don't see you know, any reason why you know, future contracts could just take into account the facts on the ground at the time of you know, what is the RPS policy in place at the time that you know, some new contract gets signed. Or maybe we need to look at the clean energy standard and double check to see is it really, you know, getting us where we need to be. Maybe it does need to go up faster than 2% a year to get where we need to go sooner. We all know that time is of the essence with climate change and that we really have to do everything we can as quickly as we can and as orderly as we can to make sure that we don't fall off track. It's just we, we just can't wait any longer to to use every tool that we have in our toolbox. Um, the RPS has shown 
you know, in and of itself that it's, you know, it's, it's really a driver of economic growth. It's something that's broadly supported by, you know, the um, coalition of the, the mass, you know, healthcare alliance coalition um, that's focused on carbon cha- um, car- climate change, um, including, you know, partners, healthcare, Boston Medical Center. We've got New Balance, you know, expressing its very strong um, support for a RPS that in, grows at a faster rate than 1% a year. Um, there are cities and towns that are, you know, going out on a limb and making commitments to higher levels of renewable renewable purchases, renewable credit purchases above the RPS. What I would like to see is, you know, an RPS that grows at a faster rate so that everyone, no matter what town they live in, no matter who they work for, that they're getting the maximum amount of renewable energy they can. And that's a combination of, you know, a fast-growing RPS and these long-term contracts to get the other kinds of resources that um, need a different structure to, to come to the market. Okay. I'm, 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 you, Bob, you want to say I mean, the fact of the matter is you can only get to 100%, okay? Uh, and how you get there is what all this discussion is about. If the RPS were to continue and go to 100% because under the current law, it, it does not have an end date, okay? So at some point, if it went up 3% per year, which is the Senate version, you know, I'd have to do a quick calculation as to when that would hit 100%. But there will come a time where all our power requirements here are renewable. And that means under the current law, and I understand Deb's point that maybe we should look at all the clean energy standard and decide how that all works and future contracts. But under the current law, which is the only thing I can go for by now, um, the RPS under some of these proposals would increase to 80 to 90 to 100 percent. And that basically crowds out every other type of power, and that includes hydro. So we're, we're losing that ability to use that in some of these aggressive increases in the RPS. And those are zero carbon energy. And I thought that, you know, when all this started back in 2008 when the green communities came back in, I actually thought the goal of all this was to get to a zero carbon economy. And here we are turning our backs on hydro, and now we're saying, well, that zero carbon is not the same as this zero carbon, and we should subsidize this zero carbon instead of dealing with that zero carbon. And our approach is to bring it all together and use it all to get to a zero carbon faster. Well, that was an interesting interpretation. So, Deborah, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to have to wrap it up because we're getting it close to the end time. But if you want to respond to that, and then uh, I think I'll wrap up. Well, unfortunately, my response to that is about as arcane and geeky as we can get. But what I want to make sure everybody understands is that the energy that serves Massachusetts is part of a power pool that covers six New England states. Massachusetts only uses 50% of the electrons that get delivered. So there is no physical reason why the hydro energy can't come into the region. And it's a very different kind of transaction than buying a certificate that represents the attributes of, you know, renewable energy generation from a a wind project for, say, a land-based wind project. What we need is diversity. What we need is not to put our eggs all in one basket. I totally agree with that. Um, But to say that there's some kind of physical impediment because the utilities are buying electrons from one generator and they're buying RECs from another generator. 
they're not mutually exclusive. It, like I said at the beginning, it's not an either or. There's a lot of things happening in our regional market that are going to be great for imported hydro energy, really great for our region, really great for the climate. There are retirements of old, inefficient fossil and nuclear plants that need to be replaced. Hydro is one of the ideal options for that, and as, as offshore wind is as well. And we've got a real issue with being over-dependent on natural gas right now. This fracked gas that's coming in that's so horrible for the environment and the climate. You know, we need to get on a path where we're not dependent yeah. on that type of no, fuel anymore. I don't think yeah. that's what, but I'm, I'm not sure that's what we're talking about. I think we're talking about how to get to that path. And it seems to me it's all really comes down to dollars and cents in a lot of ways. Uh, you might say the dollars and cents need to go to wind, more need to go to wind and solar. I think, Bob, if I'm quoting you correctly, you're sort of saying, um, yeah, that, that might be a good thing, but we've got this hydro over here. We've got who knows what else might happen in the coming years. That's putting all your eggs in, steering them in one direction. And I think that's what you're saying. But it really comes down to where do we want to spend our money? And you're saying, let's do it here. Bob's sort of saying, let's spread it, actually spread it around a bit, but not give this big infusion to solar and wind, onshore mm-hmm. solar and wind. And it, it sort of sounds to me like it's an economic, rather than an environmental argument. Well, I think that the tools that we're talking about, the long-term contracts and these certificate markets, um, they, they serve a different purpose depending on the kind of technology that you want, but they're all designed to get this, these technologies into our market in a way that's the most affordable that's, that's possible. So I, I really don't think it's you know, a, the right characterization to say that you know, I'm, I want all the eggs in the RPS basket or that Acadia Center or any of our, our colleagues or any of these other supporters that I mentioned before, it's it's not an either or. I think that's just a false dichotomy. I think that that the RPS has been it's been proven that it it you know is an essential ingredient to building a clean energy economy for Massachusetts. But we are part of a bigger energy market that has got a lot of opportunities for all of the technologies that we're talking about here. Massachusetts is falling behind the other states like Connecticut, New York, Rhode Island that are all adjusting their RPS targets because of the facts on the ground, because of the need to really pick up the pace to getting to this, this zero carbon um, energy system and a zero carbon economy. Well, listeners, thanks for staying with us and being patient through this discussion. I, I hope there was good payoff in the end. Uh, I want to thank uh, Deborah Donovan of the Acadia Center and Bob Rio of AIM. And please join us next week. And as always, subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.